You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 18th, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Perry DeAngelis. Right on. And Evan Bernstein. And uh, our thoughts and our hearts go out to the families and friends of the 32 murdered students uh, and people at uh, Virginia Tech this week. Yes, absolutely. It's a a sad moment in American history. Still processing that senseless tragedy. Very unfortunate. I don't get how that stuff happens. I mean, someone has a broken heart. Why would they murder 32 people? Here's the story very, very quickly. Uh, that what we this is what we have so far as it's you know dribbling out in the press. This student, 24 year old um, South Korean legal immigrant to the United States, was a senior at Virginia Tech. His name was Cho, and he was the classic profile of somebody waiting to snap and start killing other people. I mean, he did not talk to anybody, didn't have any friends, was estranged from his roommates. He, in fact, had been writing very alarming and disturbing things in his like English homework that he was handing in. The English teacher expressed concerns about him to the, the counseling center, apparently, as well as you know the, the university itself. And uh, they felt that there was nothing they could do about it un- unless he actually made a threat. So this is, you know, in retrospect, this was like every red flag that there is that this this person was ready to snap. The police had to deal with him on five separate occasions. Right. But never, never criminal charges were filed. It's going to take a while to put the whole story together and to see, you know, where the failures were that that allowed this to happen. And also, you know, what what are there, 26,000 students at Virginia Tech? Honestly, you, you have to wonder, can you prevent something like this from happening at such a large large school, but it seems that warnings were ignored. I also noticed that uh, when events like this occur, a lot of the uh, the pop gurus, you know, like to put their two cents in and sort of interpret it in line with whatever their own little philosophy is. The first one I heard after this one was Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil, who was very quick to blame the whole thing on violence on in the media, like on video games and television. It's always that, though, isn't it? <laughs> it's such an e- it's just an easy thing to reach for, you know. Unless you're the Phelps clan, they blame it on homosexuality. They've right. already voiced their concerns. Yeah, if it were the late seventies or early eighties, they'd be blaming it on Dungeons and Dragons, perhaps. Right. You blame it on whatever your boogeyman is. The Scientologists are blaming it on the evil spirits inside all of us. The evil alien spirits. They've, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen, but they've dispatched their uh, little clan of helpers into um, Blacksburg to I'm sure they have. counsel oh, yeah. people, a.k.a. Right. induct them into their cult. Right. Well, people are vulnerable. Let's swoop in and do yeah. <laughs> they have a They have a detector. Descend like that. vultures. Mm-hmm. So, a very sad event, um, but let's move on to some other news. Actually, there was a little bit of an anniversary that we let slip by a couple weeks ago. This is actually uh, March twenty ninth, two thousand and six. Was a very important day for the Skeptics Guide. Do you guys remember what oh, happened yeah. on that day? Jay lost um, his virginity. 
No, other than that. <laughs> very oh. close, though, Rebecca. Very close. Jamie and, like, actually, I was say, these, and these two things are not related, by the way, in case there's any speculation out there. That was actually, Rebecca, your first appearance as a oh, panelist on The Skeptic's Guide. <laughs> I should have heard the answer yeah. first. Oh, Rebecca. <laughs> 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 Your virginity, that was not very nice. <laughs> after all, are you? <laughs> I take it all back. Um, so to wow. celebrate this, wow! It's funny that the guy that actually put this whole thing together is the person you insulted first. What um, put this whole? What do you mean? Put I contacted. Thing? I contacted Mike, the uh, owner and operator of SGUFans.net, and uh, Mike and I talked about it, and we came up with some some quotes. Some famous Rebecca quotes that we'd like to play now and laugh a little bit oh, of the kidding. history of Rebecca on the <laughs> SGU. So here is uh, Rebecca on, what was it, the first interview, I believe. Joining us now is Rebecca Watson. Rebecca, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Thanks, good to be here. Now, that was pretty lame, if you think about it. <laughs> Compare that Rebecca to our Rebecca. This is that was torturous. Actually, that was actually polite, Rebecca. But <laughs> that was polite, Rebecca. Right? Yeah. That was then the interview, here, but Rebecca. Here's a clip of uh, Rebecca on the first sh- time she showed up as a panelist. So yes. Rebecca is uh, the Skeptic. She runs Skeptic.org, publisher of the Skeptic Calendar. She, she writes. She own. writes a. She writes a great blog. I recommend great blog. it to everybody. Um, Thank you very much. So we're, we're happy to have you aboard. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, you poor rubes. <laughs> we, we were all so full of hope. <laughs> In hindsight, it was a very sad day. For the <laughs> we had no idea. The tragedy that has unfolded since. I think that was, that was the bait part of the bait and switch. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually my sister posing. That was, you were, oh God. That was your good twin, right? Because you're the evil yeah. twin. <laughs> and now this is what we get. Look, just shut up, okay? (laughs) All of you. (laughs) Here's one of my favorite Rebecca quotes. I won't mate with any of the true believers. (laughs) It almost doesn't get any better than that. It's funny because it's true. I don't know. I like the penis one with the hand. (laughs) That's my personal, maybe. That's my personal. What's the gay thing here? I'm looking at my palm. What am I? So what, the finger length? Are you holding a penis? (laughs) Ah <laughs> uh, yes, classic. Uh, can I just uh, say, is, I, this, go ahead, Rebecca. Is, this is this is really torturous for me. I don't, I can't even listen to the podcast after we finish it because I hate hearing myself. Oh, well, I mean, I, thank I you, but it's killing me. Go on. Sorry. Here's a funny Rebecca quote. Another funny Rebecca quote. I have evidence that shows that we are in imminent danger of attack from aliens. But you're going to have to wait until Harper Collins is releasing it in September. <laughs> I remember that one. That was actually very funny. <laughs> Thank you. I try. Uh, uh, and then there was one more thing. One more thing. This is a message from Mike and uh, you know, and the people on the message board. Oh, Rebecca, you've been entertaining us on the Skeptics Guide for a year now. You've made us think while making us laugh, and that's more than anyone can ask for. On behalf of all your fans, thank you. It wouldn't be the same without you. Happy Aww. anniversary. 
Oh, that's really sweet. Thank yeah, you, Mike. And nice. And everyone. Mike's He's a good such guy. a sycophant. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Mike, Rebecca, Mike for the last year. And uh, since this is going to be your last episode, we thought we'd give you a good send-off. Yeah. <laughs> hey, now, wait a minute. <laughs> out, 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 you bum, you. Well, you got the memo, right? Oh, oh the memo again. Uh, I think I forgot to mail it. Um, Am I getting, like, a Sorry. spin-off show? Like a Colbert Nation thing? <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> no, uh, thank you guys so much this the past year has been a lot of fun and the podcast has uh totally changed my life um i could say hopefully that. for the better uh in some ways yes um yeah no for the is better. that true rebecca this podcast has changed your life it has um well yeah because the podcast reached uh a different kind of audience than what i was reaching with just skeptic alone right. and we kind of combined forces and and you know it keeps me on my toes too um in much the same way that you know i i try to to make a blog entry every day doing the podcast every week kind of forces me to keep reading the news and keep staying excited about skepticism about critical thinking and about communicating science to the public and it's really gratifying to to get the responses we get from our listeners um about how we're helping them become better uh, rational thinkers. So it really has been a fabulous year. And uh, above and beyond all that, it's been awesome getting to know you guys because I didn't know you, obviously, before I did the podcast. And I can genuinely say that I'm a better person for having known each one of you. So thank you. Wow, oh, thank you, Rebecca. Isn't that amazing? Here, here. <laughs> here, Rebecca. Well said. Now, that's just between us, right? Don't go telling other <laughs> yeah, that, people. I won't put yes. that one out. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll edit that yeah, one cut out. Cut that later. out, Steve. I don't want to sure. hear that on my second anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't want that stuff coming back to haunt me. <laughs> well, it, it has been a great pleasure having you on the show, Rebecca. We do appreciate it. Well, thank you. So, uh, you guys remember the uh, neurosurgeon, Dr. Michael Egnor, who is the latest mouthpiece for the intelligent design uh, people, the Discovery oh, yeah. Institute. Ignore him. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, his name is perfect. I mean, he's like, you know, ignore him, ignoramus. He's ignorant. You know, just you know, the, pun, <laughs> the puns are flying in the blog, the blogosphere. But uh, he, he wrote an article attacking me. Can you believe it? Oh, my God. Shocked. Yeah. Uh, Shocked. Steve. The Discovery Institute <laughs> website. Actually, I was quite honored. Now this to is be, war. To be attacked. And uh, it's incredible. You know, the, um, so this is, you know, as we discussed previously, this guy's a neurosurgeon who is a, a, an intelligent designer, creationist, um, evolution denier. And he has been saying a series of fairly ridiculous things. And the, uh, the science bloggers, myself included, are having a good time tearing him apart. I wrote, an, I wrote a blog entry a couple weeks ago basically talking about the fact that, you know, that his expertise as a neurosurgeon certainly lends no credibility to his opinions about evolution. And that, it's, you know, isn't it pathetic that the Discovery Institute you know, lines these people up? Uh, but Steve, he, the, the, his comments also lend no credibility to his occupation as a neurosurgeon. That's right. That's certainly true. Just for the background, his primary point was concerning information theory, which I want to talk about for a few minutes. But he was basically saying that there is no way that evolutionary processes, mutation and natural selection, can increase information 
genetic information. And he challenged the scientific community to send him one reference that, can, that proves that evolutionary forces can increase genetic information. He was sent 3,000 references. Uh, so what he did was a very typical ploy. You know, I call it the intellectual shell game, where he basically, basically altered his demand without ever acknowledging that his initial demand was met. He, now he's saying, well, show me evidence, you know, a scientific published paper that shows how much information evolutionary forces can increase over time. So now we're sort of shifting the claim to not that it cannot increase information, but it couldn't increase information enough to account for the diversity that we have. Now, the uh, so information theory is one of those areas that the intelligent designers like to uh, to talk about, primarily because nobody really understands what it is. It's kind of like a quantum mechanics. It sounds really good, but nobody really understands it, so you could pretty much say any crap you want, and most people aren't going to know why it's wrong. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no one understands it. The mathematicians who are working on it understand it, but I mean like in the public. Yeah, and it's not as counterintuitive as quantum mechanics. Well, actually, still, I disagree I with point. that, Bob. It's, it is pretty counterintuitive. Oh, yeah, but still... Still, it can it can be pretty counterintuitive and and still not be nearly as counterintuitive as quantum mechanics. But it's well, semantics. It's semantics, and it's okay. also the the point is it's counterintuitive enough that you can really confuse okay. people. And let me let me just quickly go over go over that. So, the basics of information theory is just basically mathematical models that try to quantify how much information exists in a in a system or whatever. So it's how how do you quantify information? And it, it's actually you know, it may not intuitively sound like a difficult problem, but actually it's a very, very complex, difficult question. And you have to define information very specifically in order to even approach that question. The problem with, with the intelligent designers is they never really define the word information. And they kind of sort of shift from one definition to another as needed in order to, again, play the shell game to avoid what's going on. So let me give you an example. Assume you have a text document, and it's comprised of, and I'm pimping this from a, sign, a Skeptical Inquirer article. I can't remember the author. But uh, you have a, it's a thousand uh, letter A's, just a letter A a thousand times, right? That's one, one document. The next document is a thousand characters completely and utterly at random, a, a totally random sequence of characters. And the third document is a thousand character essay on some specific topic, you know, the effect of the papacy on the British parliamentary system, whatever. Which one of those three text documents has the most information in it? The question is, well, how do you define information? If you define information in a very specific, in one specific way that the information theorists have is, in other words, if you try to compress that information to the smallest amount of information necessary to completely describe the, what you have, uh, that's, uh, that's one way to measure the amount of information. Now, you, c- you can compress the string of A's very simple, in, in A a thousand times. That's the, all the information you need. It turns out the random sequence, you really can't compress it at all because there's no patterns. It is complete. You have to de- designate each letter because there's, there's, there's just no way to compress it. The essay, although in, it may intuitively seem as if it has the most information, Actually, there's patterns and, and, re, and repetitions and recurrences that you can use that in order to use some algorithm, compression algorithm. This is actually what like zipping up a word file does that compress it to, to less, like maybe about 40 or 50% uh, of, uh, 
you know, like a 40 or 50% compression. So, 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 Steve, correct me if I'm wrong. What, what people are confusing in that specific case is they're confusing meaning with information. Yes, I mean, exactly, exactly. And that's what the intelligent designers do. And then, they, and then they'll say, so when you show them that, well, yeah, there's gene du- duplication. Right? Here's a paper showing that this gene over evolutionary history has been duplicated. That's, you know, a doubling of the amount of genetic information. Therefore, that's an increase in information. And then they say... Yeah, but it's not, you know, show me that it can have an increase in specified information or, or biologically relevant information, which is just again, some arbitrary thing they're attaching to it to wiggle out of, uh, of the evidence. And also, you know, they, they're not defining information up front. So my point is, there's a lot of counterintuitive things about information theory. You have to very carefully define what you mean by information up front. And the, infra- and the intelligent design people are using that confusion to play this shell game and to constantly migrate their demands around whatever evidence they're being offered. But the bottom line is, you know, genes do get duplicated. And uh, even chromosomes can be duplicated. And mutations increase the amount of variability in the, in the information that's there. And then natural selection can provide that information with non-random specificity, biological relevance, right? That's the two-step process, you know, mutation and natural selection. And also, um, scientists have, have, have actually seen gene, gene duplication. They haven't just, you know, inferred gene duplication because, like, oh, these two genes, are, they're kind of similar. Maybe they're, they're the products of gene duplication. They've actually seen it by using yeast, and they put yeast yeah. in a medium with very little sugar. Sugar. And after hundreds of generations, uh, the hexose transport genes had duplicated. They, so they observed this. Yes, and then yes. some of the duplicated ones have had mutated even further. We, had, we could put a reference to that specific experiment on the, on right. the well, site. Just, but, I mean, they've just seen yesterday, it. Bob, just yesterday I, I found an yes. article that was actually published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences showing that you know, 24 of the genes that make up the bacteria flagellum uh, are, are the, all descended from a common ancestor gene. That those 24 genes are the product of gene duplication. So you had one gene that, over the course of evolutionary history, became 24 different genes, and that and that they went on to evolve, you know, di- differences that added to the different components of the flagellum. So you can actually, you know, reverse engineer, if you will, the the evolution of the bacterial flagellum. What a coup! What a coup that is! That yeah, is what a coup! Awesome. This is not, the reason why this is especially poignant is because the bacteria flagellum was one of the primary examples used by Michael Behe to, as an irreducibly complex structure. Well, we've reduced it all the way down to the progenitor gene. You know, I mean, it, it completely demolishes the whole notion of irreducible complexity and shows very specifically how evolutionary forces can increase genetic information over time. Case. Closed. Along those those same lines, you think Behe will release a statement now, Steve, saying, uh, I guess I was wrong about irreducible complexity, I'm moving on to other ideas? I doubt it. But yeah, we'll, hey, so we'll see. We'll give, we'll, I'll be more than happy to give him credit if he does that, but I'm not holding my breath, as Rebecca says. Now, in, in, in Egnor's response to me, he again, you know, he moves back the goalpost and makes his demand for like how much information could be increased. And his second point is one of the most ridiculous oh. defenses of intelligent design or attacks on evolution that I've ever heard. And the fact that it's coming from a neurosurgeon is frightening. Now, what he says is that cancer is actually a good model of evolution and that cancer cells dividing, reproducing, mutating, and, and being selected for 
Uh, specifically, he uses the uh, the example of a brain tumor, a brain cancer. That that if I'm correct, right? Me, I'm, he characterizes me as a Yale Darwinist, right? He uses the old Darwinist, you know, rhetoric, which just tells you that he's a propagandist, right? If you know, if my Darwinist theories are correct, then cancer under you know mutation and selection pressures should actually occasionally evolve into useful brain structures. So why don't we see brain tumors becoming useful brain tissue and and evolving the human brain? I mean, it's okay. like jaw-droppingly absurd. Now, the but to focus in on what the mistake that he's making, which you know, it's kind of nice in that he's demonstrating he doesn't understand the first thing about evolution. It's like I'm going to take the point of view that the entire scientific community is wrong about a theory I don't understand. Um, but that's <laughs> oh man, you, you went to the Neil Adams uh, school of <laughs> right, science. Right. <laughs> so what the the problem is is that yeah, you know what the fact is that selective pressures are acting on those cancer cells. Those cancer cells are evolving, uh, but they're evolving to you know to survive. Right, the cancer cells don't care about the person, and they can't. And evolutionary pressures can't act at these higher hierarchical levels. So the the cells, first of all, they don't have the really the, the developmental capability of producing useful structures. Right? I mean, it's they're too far developed. So that's just not plausible. But also, there are no selective pressures for those cells. Right? The cells don't benefit, uh, or evolution cannot, pro- you know produce selective pressures on those cells to, to benefit the entire organism. They could only provide selective pressures for those cells to survive, which they do. Steve, is Egnor really just doesn't get it, or is he trying to be deceptive? You know, again, we can't read the minds of these people. I think they're intellectually dishonest because they don't ever acknowledge uh, when legitimate points are when are made against them or when their mistakes are corrected they don't acknowledge it and they don't change it so that that whether or not it's you know how conscious it is it's possible to say but it certainly is intellectually dishonest one uh, theory and clearly he, i don't think he gets it either but how did he become a neurosurgeon i guess is my point yeah you you can you can, you can be a surgeon without becoming conversant in evolutionary theory uh, I, well, i'm sure it's a matter of faith for him and he's he's simply bending his knowledge and his uh his education to fit his faith. Again, I did write an extensive blog response to his article, and I linked to many of the other uh, science bloggers who have also responded to his nonsense. If you want to read about this, is you know a, a lot of electronic ink has been spent on uh, answering him. So, one more news item: we actually uh, Perry and I previously recorded a very interesting interview with Susan Blackmore. So that's coming up a little bit later in the show. The next news item concerns the European Union, and apparently they're considering criminalizing Holocaust denial. Uh, so the, 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 the Holocaust denial is already a crime in Germany, and I believe also in uh, Austria. But now the European Union is thinking about extending similar laws through, you know, throughout the EU. It's kind of funny. Like it, I, I sent you this article, Steve. Yeah. It rubbed me... Both ways. Like, I was like, yeah, cool. Absolutely. It's good. They should do it because, and I was like, wait a minute. You know, it's also the, the thought police, which kind of scares yeah. me too. So I don't know which way to go with this. Oh, I can't imagine even endorsing this in the least. I think it's an awful yeah. idea. I think it's the absolute yeah, it's terrible worst idea. possible thing you could yeah. do. Um, you're, you're, you know, I, I feel weird just, I mean, I'm saying exactly what I've said before, which is, you know, you, you push these things underground, uh, they'll continue their hatred in secret, 
put it out there in the open and let us combat it with information and otherwise you know you're just suppressing free speech and it's not the way to do it yeah it's not worth the loss of our freedom of speech and the exchange of ideas which you know freedom means that people have the right to say and do stupid things uh, and you can't criminalize every act or thought of stupidity. It is the, it is the thought police. And also, you know, by outlawing it, you kind of give it a certain credibility, uh, almost countercultural credibility. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I I think it's a mistake. I think they just have to, you know, deal with it by exposing their nonsense. You know, getting the real information out there. You know, ridicule them all you want. You know, we we. Resort to that occasionally, but uh, criminalizing it, I think, is the wrong way to go. What do you think, Evan? Um, it's interesting that the EU, as a collective body, is proposing to do this, and I agree with all of you that uh, that it's it's a bad idea. Suppression of speech is a bad idea. However, the fact that in Germany and Austria that it that it is uh, a crime to deny the Holocaust. I don't know that we can necessarily put ourselves in the shoes of those people who actually are responsible for the atrocities committed and how, you know, we would cope with that in our generations afterwards and, and, and have to deal with that, with that sort of, boy, enormous collective guilt. I think uh, we can though, because, I mean, I think we can well enough to make a, to have an opinion on this because you shouldn't be making those kind of decisions from an emotional standpoint. You should be making them from a logical standpoint and looking at what is going to be best for the country and for the society going forward. Yeah, I agree with yeah. that, definitely. Imagine, yeah. though, and if this thing actually happens and people are going to jail for this, you know? You got a guy there, you know, what are you in for? Well, I killed my parents. What about that guy over there? Oh, that's Hans. Don't mess with him. He don't believe in the Holocaust. It's like, what? Who <laughs> <laughs> did you put these people in the jail with? <laughs> what? Yeah, we, we spoke before about the British historian, his British, um, the British historian, David Irving, who was arrested in Austria. Um, so, I mean, it is happening. It has happened. Um, yes. Well, I want to leave a lot of time for the Susan Blackmore interview, so we're going to uh, skip your responding to email this week and go on to the interview. So joining me now is Sue Blackmore. Sue, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you very much. Uh, Susan Blackmore is a uh, psychology researcher, and you did your um, you got your degree from Oxford University, and you've uh, written articles and books on many interesting topics, memes and consciousness and parapsychology. I, I wanted to start out tonight just talking about consciousness. Uh, this is you know I'm a neurologist, in case you don't know, and this is a very interesting topic. We've had other guests talking about this, and I see this as one of those you know nebulous areas in science where the science of consciousness is not well understood, and that opens the door for a lot of pseudoscience, basically that people can insert into the unknown whatever they wish. And you have some very interesting ideas on consciousness. If you, maybe if you could just start out by telling us what you think consciousness is. Oh, I haven't a clue what it is. I, I, it, it's this. It's whatever you're experiencing now. Nobody has a very clear definition of consciousness. Um, but I think the consensus now is, is that we need to start from Thomas Nagel's famous question, what is it like to be a bat? The idea being, if, if there is something it's like to be a bat, <clears throat> that's what we mean by consciousness. And if there isn't, 
then it's not. So if you ask, what is it like to be this pair of glasses I'm holding in my hand? Well, presumably nothing. So it's that that we're trying to understand. How can a brain be the source of or explain or account for or give rise to subjective experience? That's the big problem for science. And my own thoughts about it are that we must have something fundamentally wrong in our conception of consciousness to lead us into such a difficult problem where it appears scientifically to be completely impossible. Yeah, and I, I've read a lot of what you've written about it. One, one of the points you bring up is that there, there are those who think that it's really a pseudo-problem that um, and I, I admit that I, I kind of may still fall into this camp that we may be making more of a problem than it, than it really is. Uh, that you know. So th- my question is, why does consciousness have to be this thing? You know, why does it have to be something? Why isn't just the ongoing activity of the brain sufficient to say that it's just the label that we're attaching to to that neurological process? Because. Because it's impossible, well, it's not impossible, it's very difficult in the way most of us think about about what a brain is, what it's made of, how it works, to jump from that to the experience you're having now. I mean, look at something in front of you. What are you looking at now? My computer screen with your website on it. <laughs> oh, fine, okay. So <clears throat> you're looking at that. You're experiencing it in a unique way. Only you know what that experience is like. You can't share that with somebody else. There are subjective qualities. How How... Can that be, as you just said, the ongoing processes of the brain? It, it doesn't seem to be the same kind of thing. It doesn't seem that we can make the leap between matter and subjective experience. And then you've got another whole lot of problems. It feels as though you are having those experiences, and there is a you who is having them. But we don't scientifically know what a you could be. You know, there's a brain, and there's a body, and there's a person, and there are behaviors. But what is the you who's having the experience? That doesn't seem to make sense either. And then there's another problem that when you think about it that way, there seems to be me having the experiences. Well, I can experience what I'm looking at, what I'm touching, but I can't experience the digestive processes in my tummy. I can't experience most of the processes that lead up to me experiencing a room, being able to see the pink chair over there and the black television over there. Um, that, that, that's another problem that we don't know how to solve. What does it mean that some brain processes are conscious and others aren't? Is there some kind of magic in them? All of these natural ways in which we talk about it make what you said, although it sounds right and probably is in some sense right, that consciousness just is the ongoing process of the brain. But we have to solve those problems, and we're not anywhere close, I would say. Can I just go back to the point you made earlier about people clutching at straws and so on? It's because we have this extraordinary mystery. Yes, it is open to people to say all sorts of, you know, other ways than... The scientists are getting on with trying to understand the neurophysiology, the neuropsychology, all sorts of other things that go into trying to understand consciousness. And all around are people coming up with things that they think are solutions. Quantum theory, um, spirits and souls, other um, dimensions, vibrations in a non-existent ether, I mean, endless things that people come up with. But I can understand why. Because, because the mystery is really difficult. You then said, well, Lots of people think it's a non-mystery. I think that's right. I think somehow we have to see why it isn't the kind of mystery it appears. But that will mean dismantling a lot of the ways we normally talk about consciousness. Now, I do agree with that, and I admit that my bias is that I'm approaching this as a neurologist. You know, I'm, trying to underst- I'm trying to understand it as a brain function. And I'm very compelled by a lot of the research. For example, we've pr- pretty much identified a part of the brain that gives us a sense that we are inside our bodies. And when you stop that part of the brain from working, either pharmacologically, and now we can do it electromagnetically, then 
and people have a sense of floating outside their bodies. I know. Isn't it wonderful that it can be done now? Right, and it's uh, so to me that says, okay, well, this sense that I have that I'm inside my body, which seems to be a, a kind of a critical component of my just sense of existing, is can be localized to a very specific part of the brain. Well, what if there's just a dozen or so of those kinds of processes that collectively give me this experience that I exist and have a stream of consciousness? Is that do you think that at some point we will have some? sufficient neurological explanation of all the components that go up that make up consciousness i was about to say yes but when you said the phrase make up consciousness then i then i start to disagree that phrase itself implies that consciousness is a kind of thing composed of components that when we understand them all put it together and we'll have understood this thing called consciousness and i suspect there isn't anything called consciousness and what will happen when we understand all these things is that we will have peeled off all the layers until we see that there isn't anything called consciousness at all but but that's just my view. That's not really answering your question. Your question about the research on out-of-the-body experiences, of course, is particularly interesting to me because it was a very long out-of-the-body experience, extraordinary experience that started me off in my career in parapsychology in the first place. And I've always been interested in it. And now that we know which parts of the brain are involved and how to induce the experience, um, it's fantastic, you know, things that I thought earlier on, that there must be such brain places and so on. It's fantastic to have found them. That is great if you want to understand the origins of, of near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, and so on. But it leaves the, the nature of consciousness untouched in a sense. Yes, we know that doing something with the brain changes the kind of state of consciousness we're in. But how can a little bit of the left temporal lobe, whatever, um, be what it's like to feel as though you're floating above your body. Again, we have this kind of mind-body gap, the, the hard problem, the, yeah. the problem of explaining one with the other, explanatory gap. Yeah, I, I wonder if it's really the explanatory gap is more of uh, just a, a gap in having the correct words to express the concepts that exactly. we're sort of dancing around. Exactly, that's exactly and, what and I think. Is, <clears throat> but okay, we do have that, to then find a way to, to, to have other words and other ways of... Of, of thinking about it, and that's really challenging and fascinating. How, wh- what are the new words going to be like? What are we going to say? I think right, it right. takes more than new words. I think actually it takes new ways of experiencing the world. So I think that while we're doing all the fantastic neuroscience, or well, actually I'm not, I mean, well, other people are, for my benefit and everyone's benefit, doing all this neuroscience, we must also be looking into our own experience and thinking how the different theories affect the way we experience in the world and try to understand whether our experience itself is colored by the way we talk about it. And if we start talking mm-hmm. about it differently, will our experience change? No, I agree with that. And I think the, another way that I appro- have approached this is that we, we have this, this belief, I know some people call it an illusion, that, that we are, that we exist somehow separately from our brain. Yeah. And I think if you, if you just think about it, this is just the brain experiencing itself. Yeah. Right? Well, what does that then, mean? Then, what does that mean? Then, Isn't that a wonderful thought? The brain experiencing yeah. itself. Or an even bigger thought, part of the universe experiencing itself. Or indeed, right. ultimately, all of the universe experiencing itself. But what is that? I mean, mm-hmm. how can that be? That's, that's also part of the, the mystery here. And just to be clear... You do not think that there is any metaphysical thing outside of the electrochemical activity in the brain 
that is consciousness, right? So you reject the ghost in the machine, Absolutely, so, yes. so-called. Yes. And, and souls and spirits and, you know, any kind of self that, that can exist separately, all of that, yes. I think I used to believe in, in a lot of those things. It was, you know, it was a hard knocks of doing experiments and, and, and thinking about theories that knocked it out of me and made me see that those things are really, I don't think they can be. Now, we interviewed uh, Alan Wallace. I don't know if you're familiar with his writings. Yes, I am. Okay, so he, very interesting, but his, his, if I understood correctly, his basic... Uh, conclusion was that the the conscious is created by the brain, but it's this other thing that's created by the brain, and it's not matter, but it, it it's something else. And he, you know, he did invoke, I, th- I thought, a lot of quantum mechanics pseudoscience in his reasoning. But I, I don't think that's the way to go at all. I don't think the brain creates anything um, in the sense of being um, you know some new thing that's created by the brain that can then go off and do things on its own. No, no way at all. Somehow I think we have to understand how what the brain is doing is this experience. Um, I don't see how that can be. I'm, I, you know, <laughs> um, but, but that's the way I think we have to go. It's interesting. I mean, it is the brain struggling to understand itself, and, and you wonder if there's some ultimate limits there. I mean, that, yeah, you can in become, a way we cannot get outside of ourselves. You, know? you can become a mysterian and say the problem is impenetrable to humans because our brains are designed the way they can't understand it. That could be so, but I'm not going to give up at this stage. I'd rather assume it's not so and that we can actually penetrate the mystery and understand things. But I think that really means dropping a lot of illusions. Um, you mentioned mm-hmm. something, you know, the word illusion before. It's a problematic word all the time. Because when yes. I say, I think consciousness is an illusion, or I think the self is an illusion, people interpret that as meaning those things don't exist. But that's not what we mean by illusion. If you look it up in the dictionary, illusion means something that's misleading or not what it appears to be. And that's how I think about consciousness and about self. They're not what they appear to be. Consciousness appears to be a kind of force or a, or a stuff or something continuous. Self appears to be something that has powers that continue through life. I think these, these aspects are illusory, but the, the, mm-hmm. there's still something going on. We, we, just, we, we just are blinkered by the natural dualist way of thinking about it, that I exist and I'm experiencing the world. And that mistake, I think, underlies so much of what we get wrong. Susan, you mentioned about new ways of experiencing the world. What, what did you mean by that? Um, well, I had two things in mind, really. I, I've been meditating now for regularly for 25 years. Um, then, then kind of meditation, very simple, straightforward, you know, stare at the white wall, shut up, sit there, don't think. Okay. And there are, that's just one kind of, of intense discipline which practiced over many years begins to change really everything about experience. It begins to loosen the, the ideas of free will, ideas of a, a, a continuous self, and so on. The other is really possibly more controversial, which is as I've gone through my life coming to new theories about the mind, about perception, it seems to me you start to see the world differently. So 100 years ago, well, 150 years ago, before people discovered eye movement, they thought you were just continuously looking at the world, and they were terribly upset by discovering that you have these rapid eye movements around the place. Um, you know, how can it be yeah. that it seems all smooth when actually um, our eyes are jumping about? Well, people sort of got used to that. But much more recently, we've realized that um, perception is probably has to be understood as an interactive process with the world, and it's a kind of doing rather than a sort of receiving of the information out there. So I try to see the world through the eyes of the different theories that I'm trying to understand, and that can have some bizarre effects. I think 
vision can change quite considerably when you start to think of it in a different way like that. I think another sort of classical way that medicine and neurology has attempted to understand how things work is by seeing what happens when they break down. So, you know, as a neurologist, I've I've actually personally experienced, and in various times, Perry has personally experienced, and I've also examined many, many patients who had some state of consciousness that was imperfect. It was broken down. All the pieces weren't there, and they weren't able to process the information that was coming in or their own thoughts in, in, the, in the normal way. And I think it's very instructive because you're basically seeing when the brain creates a, a flawed or, or malfunctional state of consciousness. Uh, and I think it, it tells you a lot about like, that, you know, there are different components to consciousness because when some of them are missing, you get something sort of less than what we think of as consciousness. Yes. I, I've just watched my mother descend through the most awful depths of vascular dementia. And even a year ago, I went on a, a little trip with her and my sister, and she wasn't too bad and was still my mum. And she died last month. And, and for several months before that, was not my mum. She couldn't speak properly right. anymore. She couldn't recognize people anymore. Her world had shrunk to something incomprehensible that I couldn't see. I found the process, as you said, extremely instructive, painful, heart-rending, you know, dragged at the claws of what of it course. is to be human. And one thing that really struck me one day, I was sitting there with her, and she was all sort of shriveled up in her chair and unable to understand much, and I thought... I don't understand how people can go on believing in a soul or a spirit when they see the reality of human life. I could have all mm-hmm. these, you know, deep feelings about my mother dying while just knowing she is a biological machine, evolved like the rest of us for no reason at all, you know, through natural selection, lived her life uh, and is now at the end of it. That makes sense. And I was really struck by... You know, the thought that an awful lot of people, most people in the world, somehow can see that degeneration and still believe there's a soul in there somehow. I don't understand that. Yeah, that's always seemed very incongruous to me as well. Almost like a QED kind yeah. of moment. Like this, it, it kind of dissolves any sense of the ghost in the machine, yeah. that there's a spirit yeah. separate from the sophisticated meat yeah. that we are. And I want to use that experience not just to think about um, neurological breakdown and so on, but about, for, for me as a healthy person in, in the middle of life doing lots of things, it's the same. It's, it's not, you were implying that there are, you know, fully functioning states and broken down states. Of course, to some extent there are. But then there's so, so, so much variety. And in a sense, they are all based on the same thing that, of a biological machine without a self inhabiting it. And I think it's mm-hmm. important to take those kind of um, experiences and apply them in your own life while you're still fit and healthy and see that there's nobody in there now either. You know, there's nobody inside here, mm-hmm. this, this body speaking now, <laughs> making this podcast. You know, there's not somebody in here who's doing it. Right, and yet the, the sense that there is is so compelling. It goes away gradually. I would say it's, it's still there for me. It hasn't completely gone away, but it's certainly weakened. And for me, the sense of free will, which I think is one component of all this, has completely gone away. You know, if you keep on at it hard enough, eventually these illusions will sort of dissipate. And, and you found that a liberating experience? Oh, yes. Um, but that doesn't quite uh, do it justice, if you like, because liberating kind of sounds like it's rather dangerous. It might be, oh, now I'm free to go and do any old stupid thing, you know, and <laughs> it isn't quite like that. But liberating in the sense of that I think it's liberating from a lot of burdens of confusion and 
guilt and inner fights about what you should and shouldn't do. So in that sense, liberating, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about your own autobotic experiences? What, the first autobotic experience I had all that time ago? Yes, the one that sent you on your journey into pseudoscience. <laughs> yes, I, I, I don't know how much to say. I could go on for hours about it. But um, it happened in my first term as an undergraduate in Oxford. I was, you know, thrilled and absolutely loving it at Oxford, uh, get, getting up for nine o'clock lectures and then staying up half the night and drinking port in, in colleges and uh, running the Psychical Research Society, uh, smoking dough, generally having a wonderful time. <laughs> one night we'd been doing a Ouija board session for many hours. I was extremely tired, went back to a friend's room to smoke some dope. And I was sitting there listening to some music. I don't know what it was, but probably Pink Floyd or Grateful Dead or something. <laughs> and going down a tunnel towards a bright light. And I was really engrossed in this tunnel until one of my friends said to me, where are you, Sue? And... I sort of thought, well, I'm in a tunnel. I can't say that. They'll think I'm stupid. And oh, where am I? Oh, I'm in, I know I'm in Vicky's room. Uh, and as I tried to think about where I was, it was as though everything cleared, like becoming lucid in the dream or, or like waking up, really. Everything became clear, and I was looking down from the ceiling and looking at the three of us sitting in the room. Mm. And I said, oh, I'm on the ceiling. And one of my the other friends said, um, uh, oh, oh, it's actual projection. Ah, and, you know, and, and from then on, kept talking to me. I think if he hadn't been there talking to me, I would have, like most people, got frightened and, and the experience would have ended straight away. But because he kept asking me things, I kept talking. And I could watch the mouth down below answering his questions and saying, oh, well, I'm going towards the other corner and I'm going out of the building and whatever, while watching it all disappear into the distance as I, as I went away. You know, I went on travels. I went to try and test things. I went to look at things. I became very um, small. Uh, I became a flat sheet floating up, up on the waves of the sea. I tried to get back into my body and failed, and that was when weird things began. And I went into a tiny, tiny speck and got very frightened and so tried to get bigger. And then I got bigger and bigger and bigger and became the whole universe. Now, I know that you can laugh and say that sounds silly, <laughs> but actually I later discovered that becoming one with the universe is absolute central, classic part of mystical experiences. And really what had... And there's a part of your brain that makes you feel that. And, we, and as I think I said recently on one of our shows, I had a patient who would have that kind of sensation whenever they had a seizure. I mean, so that's clearly, a, for whatever reason, there's a part of the brain I that does that. I don't think so. I mean, we'll find out more as we go along, but I don't think so much that's a part of the brain thing. The out-of-the-body experience is, and, and that's where you've got the control of body image and so on. I think this insight is probably more large parts of the brain or, you know, not just like a little area that produces this. I think what is happening is the breaking down of the illusions of separateness and of self and so on. So if all the areas that, that are producing the concept of a self inside, the control mechanism and so on, are breaking down, you can let go of that idea, false idea of a self inside and see more clearly what actually is true anyway, that everything is interconnected and it's all just one stuff and you are not just a little thing stuck inside your body. You were now, I must be clear about this. I'm not saying that you are something else that leaves the body and goes off. I'm saying that it's possible for a human being to, instead of thinking themselves as a little self inside, just to think of the universe as all one. It's a different viewpoint. It's not a very useful viewpoint for getting on with ordinary life, but it is a true viewpoint in the sense that you're seeing that everything is just stuff interconnected with other stuff doing things <laughs> along the way without a self observing them. Do you recall what was the actual time of the experience? Um, yes, 
often the top of my head, no, but um, two, two days later I wrote um, many-page description of everything that had happened, including the times of it beginning and ending. I think it was about, it started about 10.30 and went at night and went on till about 12.30 or 1 o'clock, but I, that's just from memory. Okay, several hours. Oh, yes, it was about two and a half hours altogether. <coughs> and by the end, I was absolutely exhausted, and I'd come to this point of thinking, a bit like the barrier in near-death experiences, really, you know, are you, going to, are you going to die at this point, or are you going to go back? <laughs> and so, obviously, I'm going to go back. I've now got to do the hard work of sort of going back into the illusion. And I, I can remember saying to myself, you have to go back inside the body and look out through the eyes. And that just seems so hard work. Um, and if you want to go anywhere, you've got to take the body with you. That sort of thing, kind of persuading myself back into the illusion, which I did over the next few hours, And but I was pretty peculiar for a couple of days. That's interesting. And that, that led to you focusing your research over the next few years on uh, sort of parapsychological issues. And let's shift to that a little bit. I love so, the way you, you put it there, focusing your research. I mean, there I was as a first-year um, undergraduate studying physiology and psychology. And it wasn't that I focused my research. It was that I just became obsessed with the paranormal. I must have been deeply annoying. Yeah. And in fact, my lecturers were pretty annoyed with me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, because I was going on and on and on about, you know, all this physiology stuff. It's irrelevant. We've got to understand the other world and the astral planes. And, you know, that's, that's where it took yeah. me to begin with. It was only when I'd finished my degree and finished a master's degree and was absolutely determined to try and do a PhD on parapsychology that I actually turned it all into ideas for experiments and a research program. The end result of all of that was basically reversing yes, the Yes, it was. And in fact... Because you've, you've re realized there was nothing there. Well, no, there's not nothing there. The, the experiences are there. Um, and right. that's what I had to unravel over all those years, really. Because the classic thing you get amongst the skeptics, and some, some skeptics, is a sort of, and, and particularly in the media, they just characterize the stories like this. Take near-death experiences, take out-of-the-body experiences, take visions of, you know, whatever it is. Either it's the experiences really happen, and they really prove life after death, or Jesus, or astral planes, or whatever you want, um, or they don't happen, or people are lying, or people are inventing them, and it's boring and uninteresting. Those black and white mm -hmm. things, neither is right. The right is, 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 the truth is much more complicated. There are amazing experiences, and they really do change people's lives. Experiences like the one I had, um, and, and many other kinds of strange experiences, really do change people's lives. They're important and interesting, and they tell us a lot about the brain, um, but they don't prove life after death, or heaven, or hell, or astral planes, or other vibrations, or whatever. So it's finding a way between those that, that, that's interesting, and that kept me occupied for nearly 30 years. Yeah, I agree. I think, the, and I think that the skeptical movement has matured in the direction of trying to explain this as a uh, psychocultural phenomenon. You know, obviously you can't just dismiss thing, dismiss the experiences. They are experiences, but why people believe these things and how their experiences lead them to those beliefs is actually an interesting area it of is, study. But I think it needs and, a bit more maturing still, because that still sounds a kind of like condescending thing. You know, where people are, you know, this, I, I don't know, um, believing in all these things. Well, you do believe in your own experiences when you have an extraordinary experience like that. You must believe that you had it or that your memory is completely letting you down. Now, let's suppose that it's legitimate to, to remember an extraordinary experience like that. What are you then going to believe? If you don't have the tools at hand to be able to make sense of it, it's very understandable that you would jump to a conclusion like, well, my astral body left my physical or, you know, I went to heaven. 
what we need is better tools for thinking about these things. So the work we were talking about earlier that shows which parts of the brain can be stimulated to produce out-of-the-body experiences, when people know that, it helps them to understand their own experience. A, a good example is actually sleep paralysis. I found in, mm -hmm. in some of my research, when you ask people to send, send you descriptions of weird experiences, a huge proportion of them are actually sleep paralysis, where, where you, um, you know you're paralyzed um, in dreaming sleep anyway, but normally you don't realize that because, because you're asleep and it's well, well kept, kept separate from waking. But if that separation mechanism goes wrong, you can wake up and you are paralyzed. Literally, you cannot move except for your eyes and your breathing. And it can be absolutely terrifying. If you don't know what it is, it's not surprising that you jump to the conclusion that you've been hagged or the, the Kanishibari's got you or whatever the, the local um, sleep paralysis myth in your culture is. Now we've got the science, we can explain to people, this is called sleep paralysis, this is how it works. That then changes their experience. Um, and they can better understand it, they're not so frightened. And it's fantastic, you know, it's really one of the few things I feel I've done yes. some good is helping people to understand sleep paralysis as a natural phenomenon. But we shouldn't laugh at people for having other beliefs because if we, if we can't provide a better scientific explanation, people are going to come up with something else. No, absolutely. And, you know, I've actually, I treat patients who have sleep paralysis. I've actually had it myself. And I, explaining to them what it is neurologically, they have a profound sense of relief yeah. that they actually understand exactly. what's happening to them now. Because before that, they were perplexed and grasping for whatever explanation the culture has to offer. So I absolutely agree. And I also agree that we need to to not you know, ridicule or make fun of people for having experiences or for believing. Although we do honestly reserve criticism. Sometimes you make that criticism satirical or humorous for people who not, aren't just having experiences or grasping at beliefs, but who are claiming to do science, that are thoroughly positioning themselves within the, the scientific oh, yes, oh, yes. But are just do, but are just doing bad science. And I think that you know bad science deserves to be criticized. Oh, so do I. And please, I'm not a softie when it comes to criticism. I was trying to make a point particularly about people who have powerful experiences and sometimes the skeptics yes. throw throw the baby out with the bathwater there. But I if people will go on to me about of course there's a soul, I know there's a soul, um, you know, you can't experience any other way anyway, I know there's God because I've you know, I've experienced him personally. You know, I'm just gonna tell them I think that's rubbish. I think that's, you know, illegitimate conclusions you've jumped to. And as you say, when people are um, claiming to do science when they're just you know, leaping illogically from one thing to another and inventing uh, unnecessary theories, let's be as critical as we can. But we'll be better critics if we're more open-minded about the nature of people's weird experiences. And what do you think about the, the field of parapsychology today? So, I mean, they have their own journals and researchers and, and people who are, who are certainly desperate for recognition as being legitimate science, certainly surround themselves with all the trappings of science, and yet they're coming to conclusions that the rest of the scientific community just isn't buying. If you could, why do you think it is that systematically there's this subset of researchers who are who are creating what they interpret as positive evidence for, say, psi phenomenon example, when the rest of us don't buy it. Why is that? Well, first of all, I must say I am not up to date with the state of parapsychology today. I found it very difficult to get out of parapsychology because, you know, in so many ways I loved it. I had so many friends in the field and so on, and uh, the media associated me with it endlessly, and I had to make a kind of big effort and make a clean break from it, and I've just I've not kept up with the literature, and I don't really know what's going on now. So I'm speaking from, a, from my knowledge of it five, six, seven years ago. 
I don't think so much right. has changed, but I just want to be clear that I'm yes. not an expert on parapsychology anymore. I am glad that parapsychology is going on. We must have parapsychology. It's important. It's important because um, a huge proportion of the population believe in paranormal phenomena. If they were true, they would be of enormous importance to all of science, really, particularly to, to psychology, physiology, and, and physics. Um, so it is worth going on doing them, and I'm glad people are. Now, why do they come to the conclusion that there are psi phenomena when the massive science, the rest of the science is against them? Well, it's possible because they found something, some peculiar little quirk that's, that's misbehaving in there and not, one day we'll understand it and they'll be proved right. I think more likely it is, as it's always been in parapsychology, a mixture of um, bad statistics, bad experimental design, uh, um, bad um, logical conclusions, uh, a little bit of cheating and an awful lot of self-deception. Mm -hmm. I've seen all of those things. In my many years in parapsychology, I saw all of those. The most depressing, by far, is the very, very small number of people who actually cheat. And um, mm -hmm. I, you know, one of the most distressing times that I had in my whole life, really, was revealing um, cheating going on and realizing that a whole mass of data were just not reliable. And in a way, that's colored my whole view of it because it was such hard work finding that out. Every time major cheating episodes in parapsychology have been discovered, it's been far more work for the person to uncover them than it ever was to do the research in the first place. Um, and right. you don't know without doing that kind of level of deep, hard work whether there's a lot more of it going on if only you would put that effort in. I still think it's relatively rare, um, but it's enough to color the whole field, and that's rather depressing. When, when you were trying to bring more rigor to the studies, Susan, did you find a lot of resistance from the community? No, no. I, generally, I, I mean, there were some, obviously, there are always some, you know, complete pig-headed types, but the, the vast majority, I would say, wanted to find out the truth. I mean, <laughs> you know, people want their own theories to be true, of course, but on the whole, there was a lot of cooperation. Particularly, I remember after the early Gansfeld um, results, the fantastic results, and then the, the, the problems that I discovered, and then um, Ray Hyman and Chuck Onerton, um got together. Ray Hyman, a well-known skeptic, and Chuck Onerton, the, the, the most successful Gansfeld researcher, um, wrote papers together that, um, you know, totally giving opposite opinions. And then we had a meeting to get together and decide, okay, the skeptics need to say, what is required of you parapsychologists that will convince us? And the parapsychologists had to come up with a design that the skeptics would say, you know, this, this will convince us. And this was the right way forward, I think, to come to some kind of agreement about both sides as to what would satisfy them. In the end, it didn't work out as well as we'd hoped. Uh, the automated Gansfeld was done, but there were all sorts of problems. But I would say that that was one of the most public examples of cooperation. But generally, I would say people were cooperative. I mean, some hated my 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 attitude, but most of it was. I mean, it's just that science, isn't it? You go in there, you you argue, you you try and clear up um, arguments. Um, yeah, like any other science, I would say. Right. And just for the audience, the Gansfeld experiments were experiments in remote viewing, you know, where the subjects were trying to guess which of its target images the the subject were, were viewing. And we talked to Ray Hyman about this as well. Very interesting, you know, set of data, and it shows a lot of the patterns. I think that you know the scientific community finds compelling as evidence for a lack of an effect, and yet the the parapsychology. Uh, 
um, school things that, that evidence for an effect. And what you're describing of you know two schools of thought, two different ways of interpreting existing data, they come together, they decide all right, what's a definitive design that we'll, we all can agree on. That happens a lot in science. Yes, and what happens in- you know, I've seen that happen in my own field. But the difference here is that when the experiment then got done, it still didn't resolve the dispute, So, which tells me that the differences go deeper than can be objectively resolved by a really good experiment. I, I think that's right. Okay. I mean, you asked me about how people responded, and I would say generally well, but what you've described there is a reason for doubting the existence of paranormal phenomena. Um, it doesn't prove they don't exist, but if they were there, what would probably happen is that the arguments would go on and on until somebody found some more reliable way of producing paranormal phenomena, and then all the arguments would collapse. People would at last have something to work on, theories would zoom ahead, people would start testing things, the field would expand and grow, and more people would be drawn into it, and all sorts of exciting implications would be found. That's never happened. And my guess is it never mm-hmm. will happen because there aren't any paranormal phenomena. And yet you say that, that you're happy the research is ongoing, but how long should it go on then before we say, okay, this avenue... As is- long as 60% of the population of the United States of America believe in telepathy. I mean, as long as people are going on believing in it, just imagine the situation where uh, people who, like people all over the world, believe in astral bodies, believe in telepathy or whatever, and the scientists say, we're not even going to look. I mean, that would be preposterous. As long as there are scientists... But the scientists are saying, we have looked. Isn't that different? Saying we have looked and it's not there is different than saying we're not going to look? You know, I, I wouldn't, if I were a grant-giving operation, I would not give lots of money to this. And indeed, they don't. Mm-hmm. And if I were a scientist, well, right. I am a scientist, I don't think it's worth doing. This is why the field is so tiny. Because people like me get mm-hmm. in there with all these ideas try them out, find we're wrong, get out and go and do something more productive. But I still would stand by the few people who want to carry on and say, good for you, you know? There's a dee-dee-dee-dee-dee chance you're right. Good for you, that's what science should be like. Yeah, so I, so I just want to separate a couple issues here. I certainly agree that scientists should go in whatever directions they are compelled to go in, and, and certainly exploring some unusual, uh, low-probability, high-yield areas is, is reasonable as long as we're not putting too many resources yeah. into it. But I'm not, I'm not sure I agree with the, the popular argument that, well, 60% of people believe in it, so we should be researching it. Because what I find, you know, I've focus a lot, Perry and I, over the years, trying to actually change public opinion and to try to promote the public understanding of science. And I found that the fact that there are scientists who seem respectable doing research in these fields, or which driving the belief in the first place, or at least re- it's reinforcing it, so it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling thing, where you're researching it because the public believes in it, and the public believes in it because it's being researched, and the media plays off the whole cycle. So um, I, I don't know that we're going to really break the cycle until we have you know, the scientific community could say, listen, this is a dead end, we need to move on. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean, and I, I agree with you, that's what happens. I don't think we break that cycle by not doing the research. I get, like you, so frustrated by the emails I get. I mean, I was dealing with a couple of them today, you know. Um, well, um, uh, you know, John's lab has proved the existence of psychokinesis or, you know, Targum put off proof of the existence. Of, and I write back and say, no, they didn't, and, you know, read this book and so on and so on. But in the end, I don't think that the, that the cycle is largely driven by those very, very few apparently serious researchers. I think it's mainly driven by people's own experiences they have in their everyday life and the lack of better explanations. 
So it goes back to what we were talking about before, really. I think when people better understand their own brains and their own minds and a bit of science and generally how things work, the less likely they are to jump to those beliefs. And that should really be our job, rather than stopping a, a, a few wacky scientists, um, you know, carrying on with their... Uh, all the beliefs. And so to, just to finish up on this issue, I mean, in your your experience, you're you're pretty unusual in that you're one of the few people within the skeptical movement who was on the other side for a substantial period of time. So you bring, I think, some insight into the field that most of us don't have, who were never on the other side. But wh- what do you think would be, you know, if you could focus our efforts into one or a few things that would be most effective in promoting the public understanding of science, as you say, what, what do you think are the key things we need to focus on? Oh, that's a really tough question. I think it's the kind of core understanding of what science is, that science is a method and a way of investigating the universe. And when you investigate the universe, you find that things more and more make sense. One thing leads to another, one thing causes another, there are understandable forces and patterns and, and so on. And that it's better to understand those than just to make up some kind of, um, you know, entity to explain things. It's that fundamental way of thinking that I think helps people to think through things themselves. The, the emails I most like getting are from people who say they've read the new machine or they've read, I know, something that I've written and it's changed the way they see the world. That they can conceive of a world that is um, mechanistic or, or not entirely mechanistic, but, but you know, a material world or a monist world in which there's just stuff interacting with other stuff and no cells and no spirits. And for the first time in their life, they can actually see, ah, it might be like that and it might be all right. And it's all right. I think that's the last piece that is, they have to convince people it's exactly. okay that we're just exactly. me. It's yeah. okay to believe that I am a machine. I can be a machine and love and care about things and be kind to people and have some kind of um, moral standpoint. I can, I can do all of those things while knowing that I'm a, sh- a machine that got here by evolution. Now, that, right. that's the real step for me. Susan, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Hey, and I've really just realized you made it. me go on for hours, and it's nearly 11 o'clock. <laughs> I did. I, did. <laughs> I, I, I tricked your stream of consciousness. I'm afraid you it was did. Time it was. <laughs> we, we appreciate it. I know you're staying up late for us because you're, you're over there in England. Uh, thanks again, and I hope we, uh, we can get you back on the Skeptics Guide sometime. Thanks very much. Future. I enjoyed it. Bye-bye. All right, take care. Bye-bye, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Susan. It's time for Science or... Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is fiction, which one is fake. Are you guys all ready for this week? Yes. Yes, Rebecca. I mean, yes. Number one, for the first time, researchers have reconstructed protein sequences from the fossil remains of a dinosaur, specifically a T-Rex. Item number two, long-awaited results from a decade-long neutrino experiment show that the so-called standard model of physics is no longer tenable. And item number three, new research suggests that ethanol, touted as being more eco-friendly than gasoline, would actually create an increased environmental health risk. Bob, go first. All right. Let's see. Damn, man, I got to go first. Again, Steve, you're just just being so vague here. 
Long-awaited results from decade-long neutrinos show that standard model of physics is no longer tenable. That's got to be a bunch of crap, but because of that, maybe it's not. Neutrino experiments. Oh, you stink, Steve. Increased environment ethanol. All right, I'm going to buy that one. There's a lot of a lot of these alternative fuels that just aren't as kosher as you would think. Protein sequences. I could I could see that. Um, I could see them reconstructing protein sequences, uh, which is you know they don't have to be very long at all. Now, two just can't. I can't imagine what would make the standard model of model of physics no longer tenable. Um, I'm going to go with two. Okay. <laughs> with the uh, the neutrino experiment. All right. Uh, Perry, go next. The first one, the protein sequence, I saw that in a movie. That's true. <laughs> that Jurassic situation. The old that's movie a, defense. That's Jurassic accurate. Situation. Uh, Jurassic um, situation? Of course. Like three, and like, Jurassic situation, On three too. separate occasions, I saw Actually, that was DNA, not protein, but go it, ahead. Don't start confusing people. <laughs> With the All right, facts. Jurassic Park, accurate. Um, item number three, the whole ethanol. Yeah, that, you know that whole thing is that that's a mess. So that that that's that's a mess. Now number two, I don't know. I mean, we throw physics out like every other week, don't we? <laughs> but I, I mean, I've just I've got to go with number two. I mean, I, I got to go with it. Number two. Okay, Rebecca. I agree. We, I I just can't figure out how uh, that could be true. Um, you're probably making up something there to be sneaky, but I'm going to go with number two as well. With the neutrino experiment? Yeah, I'm going to go with the, the neutrino experiment as being wrong. Okay, Evan? Neutrino experiment is fiction. Jay? Steve, even for someone as low as me... In second place, in Aww. wait, I'm sorry, I'm in fourth place in science and fiction. I'm not quite as bad as Perry, but you passed it, Perry. Yeah. Yes, I did. Oh, Jay wanted to make sure that was pointed out. Even <laughs> even, even someone as terrible at this game as I am, the, the, come on, dude. It's so freaking obvious that it's the it's the physics thing that's that's hooey. All right, so you're hooey, all geez, going for that one as fiction. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> that means that you all agree. That for the first time, researchers have reconstructed protein sequences from the fossil remains of a dinosaur, specifically a T-Rex. Now, are you all aware of the fact that standard model indicates, or the conventional wisdom indicates that proteins would not survive the fossilization process and that they would be yes, completely gone yes. by about one million years? We're not so, idiots, Steve. Million? I mean, who do you think no. came up with that, Steve? <laughs> the world is only 6,000 years old. So this would be pushing back our ability to recover... Protein sequences from 1 million years to more than 65 million years. That's what you guys are saying? That's what we're saying, Agreed. Steve. <laughs> that is, in fact, <laughs> science. And that is a very incredible find, actually. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, and Hello. even beyond that, so they were able to, and it was from a T-Rex, they were able to get some, some protein. Uh, and they were able to, the, the specific protein that they were able to get is collagen, which is not a surprise since most of the protein in your body's collagen. It's like the, the basic building yeah. block, connective tissue protein that we're made of. Did the T-Rex of. have great big lips? <laughs> Steve, the, the real Sorry. question here is, can they use it to build an, another one? Can they grow one? No, it's not, it's not, not genetic information. It's not DNA. Sequence. It's just protein. Christ. But... The whole Steve world is they, waiting. They we're were able this. to make yeah. comparisons between the sequence of amino acids in the T-Rex and the, and the sequence of amino acids in the same protein in chickens. And in spe- birds. Specifically, chickens. specifically to ask the question, 
Does this support the hypothesis that birds evolved from dinosaurs? Oh, I know the answer. I know the answer. The answer is <laughs> yes. Yes, they have. So it, it supports ah, suck that hype, the, the the birds from dinosaur hypothesis. Yes. You guys all also agree that new research suggests that ethanol, touted as being more eco-friendly than gasoline, would actually create an increased environmental health risk, and that one is. Also, science. Yay. Of course. Yay. Of course. <laughs> yeah, so ethanol does produce, the burning of ethanol does produce fewer greenhouse gases, but it does put other pollutants into the air, uh, specifically formaldehyde and ac- ac- acetaldehyde, which uh, are very caustic and would worsen uh, people with pulmonary problems with the asthma. And uh, this study actually calculates, you know, this is a... a um, a study published in Environmental Science and Technology uh, by Stanford University researcher Mark Jacobson, and he claims that this would actually increase um, pulmonary problems and result in an increase in the number of deaths from pulmonary problems. So, uh, a caution in the in the wide adoption of ethanol as uh, as a replacement for gasoline, which all means. That long-awaited results from a decade-long neutrino experiment show that the so-called standard model of physics is no longer tenable is indeed fiction. I did not lure any of you into that one. Damn it! Uh, the, what were you trying there, gravity. Steve? Hey, I almost had Bob. You know, Bob went through the thought process for all of Bob you. Bob does that every time. Come on, <laughs> be like almost had boss. Him. The sky is blue. He would take twenty minutes looking <laughs> at the sunset, No, I know why the sky is blue. This, this one was a nasty one because normally, <laughs> normally I leap at those. But I've learned from experience that I can't leap at them all the time because he's thinking of me when he he's thinks. Said that they were going to throw out the standard model of physics, you <laughs> dolt. Perry, do you even know what the standard model of physics is? <laughs> of course I do. I told you I was getting pretty sick and damn tired of gravity. Well, actually, <laughs> we're stuck with, with it. It has to do with the fundamental particles. That there are sixteen fundamental particles with with antiparticles. Uh, and this wasn't there was a neutrino experiment. It took a, it took ten years. It was a decade long neutrino experiment, and the results of this supported the standard model. So it was the opposite of, of what I said. So the standard model is secure for now. And physicists were actually waiting on this experiment because they didn't know which way it was going to go. It could have cast doubt upon the standard model, you know? Well, I mean, um, I mean, but, but I don't know. Couldn't they maybe have done a little tweak or something? I don't think it would just like throw out the whole, you know, the whole thing. No, just, of course not. Little, no, little, not would throw mean? out the whole thing, but they're, what they're, they're specifically what the article says is that they were waiting to find out about a so-called sterile type of neutrino with very right. unusual properties. Right. And it says the existence of sterile neutrinos would have thrown serious doubt on the standard model. But it didn't. Physics, schmizics. So, well, so uh, we all beat you, Steve. We all yeah, won. Yeah, but I mean, it actually was not as wacky crazy as it may have may have sounded. But uh, yeah, Steve, don't try to cover. Fiction. We kick your butt. I know. Yeah. Will you please? God, you were crushed. I'll make up for it next week. Now, Evan, Evan, you've you've informed me that you have somewhat of a special puzzle this week. Can you tell yeah, us? Yeah, but should it? we deal with last week's puzzle first? But of course. Okay, so. Here is last week's puzzle. I asked the following. I wrote 3,768 lines of code using four different languages to be spread over a thousand years. Who am I? And the answer, of course, is... Nostradamus. Nostradamus. Yes. Excellent. Um, Some some people got that. A lot of people got that one right. 
Yeah, they got that one. I got, right. Who was I the got first one, one right? to get it right, though? Oh, the first one to get it I right was, was f- from the boards. Um, OPCN. Forgive me for not knowing how to pronounce that, but uh, that is the person who guessed correctly first. So congratulations. <laughs> how many people got this one right, Evan? Was it a hard one? No. Uh, no, quite a few people got it right. You had to know that uh, 3768 is divisible by 942, which is how many uh, quatrains uh, Nostradamus wrote. Mm-hmm. Of course, four lines per quatrain. That's how I came up with that number. He wrote them in four different languages, and to be spread over a thousand years refers to the ten centuries that he broke them up mm-hmm. into and I guess presented them. So there you go. That was well a good done. one. Pretty yeah. good. Pretty good. Now, fun. this week is an audio puzzle. That's right. So, so let's hear it. Let's hear it. I'll ask the question first, though, um, or, or, or tell you what you have to do. You have to identify who the person is speaking. All right? It's you. So I di- who identify is speaking? The, right. <laughs> identify Sounds as, like heaven right. to me. Here it comes. I'm queuing it up now. We're absolutely determined that we are going to revolutionize this country and get it out of the fossil fuels era, whether we have to drag it kicking and screaming or what we have to do. It, it's time has come. Um, what we uh, want to do with this update, uh, March the 1st, year 2007, we're looking at July the 10th of the year 2007 as our target date to do this. We're not promising we will do that. We never have promised that we would do that on any specific day or time, but we are determined that by uh, May the 1st, by we have all the witnesses that we need, uh, we will indeed uh, march toward July the 10th, 2007, to have our free electricity demonstrations. Uh, we will be scurrying like crazy to make it all happen, uh, but we're not about to... Uh, plan on doing that without the proper um, support of the people themselves in order to make it happen. The most important thing of all is that we have the witnesses and we have them assembled. I mean, having the technology is absolutely meaningless without the grassroots support of the American people. Okay. Okay. So there you go. You got your work cut out for you, folks. (laughs) Identify that person. And good luck. Can I ask you one question, Evan? Yeah, sure. When was that recorded? Uh, Not that long ago, obviously. uh, March 1, according to the source. Okay. Thanks, Evan. Bob, you have a quote to close out the show for us? Yeah, I'm going to go with uh, a quote I recently came across again from John Adams. Uh, This is uh, part of this quote. You may uh, remember that um, President Reagan kind of mangled it during one of his uh, one of his talks. Uh, <laughs> what John Adams said was that facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. And uh, during one of um, Reagan's speeches, he said uh, he said facts are stupid things. Right. Trying to quote him and uh, <laughs> slightly different. Uh, so yeah, those stupid facts in there. <laughs> Well, thanks, Bob. Thanks, everyone. A couple quick announcements before we close out the show. Uh, for those who are interested, I will be on the Debate Hour, which is uh, produced by The Infidel Guy, and that will be on uh, – I don't know if this podcast is going to get out in time to hear it live. It'll be uh, Friday the, the 20th at 8 p.m., uh, but if you don't make it, then it'll, of course, be available later as a podcast. I'll be debating Dr. Bowman 
on the topic of whether or not psychiatry is legitimate science or pseudoscience. So look for that. I also wanted to thank all of our listeners who took the time to vote for us on DIG. We really appreciate it. We are now the number one uh, ranked science podcast on DIG. Thank, thank, thanks to the voting of all of our listeners. Uh, so again, thank you. And thank all of you for joining me again. Always a pleasure. Oh, it was. Thank, thank you, you, Dr. Dr. Dave. Thank you all. So Take care, and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. And the slaves.